Hey, so over in the, um, if any of you guys know where Juniata is, um, we have a parsonage right next door. Caroline and I stay there. In the kitchen, if you've been inside, we have this nice little wood table. Now, the other day, this dog and I were playing with it. Um, he was on one side, I was on the other. I was like shaking it back and forth, trying to scare him. And then I knocked over the back bench. And he ran away, Spurgeon ran away. And so I went over to check it out, realized that I broke off the back leg. And so this led to me making a fool of myself for about a week. Um, Caroline can be witness to this. I tried to sit on it. I tried to lean on it, but I just kept falling all, all over the place. And if any of you have ever like had a stool, one of those three-legged stools, you know that if any of the legs are loose or maybe a little shorter than the others, you're probably going to do the same thing. You're going to sit down. It's going to lean the wrong way. Now, if the stool is unbalanced in any way. It can probably stand. It probably looks fine. But once you sit on it, it's going to collapse. So the church, in some ways, is very similar. Um, the church has kind of three legs of a stool, if you want to put it that way. And the early church practiced these three elements, if you will. And so these three things, we're going to have them up on the screen here, are gather, listen, and scatter. They, they gather together, they listen to the Holy Spirit, then they scatter and so, just like a stool, if the church has any of these that are maybe loose, maybe not fully there, maybe even absent, the church and us can maybe fall into our backsides if we're not really practicing these. And so, just in summary there, the, the church where we're gathered, we're gathered to worship and pray, we're worship to fast as well. A church, we're called to be a church that will listen, listen to the Holy Spirit's guidings, and we will be a church that scatters, scatters to be a light into the world. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 5. If you haven't been with us uh, for the past number of weeks, we've been going through a series on Acts. And so let me just give you a little background. About 2,000 or so years ago lived a man named Jesus, claimed to be God, killed for this claim. Three days later, he resurrected from the dead. His disciples would then go and lead the greatest movement in the history of the world. And all of these churches would start popping up. And so the early disciples would send them letters saying, Hey, you need to work on this. Or, Hey, I want to encourage you with this. And so we believe today that those letters were actually inspired by God. And that's what makes up most of our New Testament today. Now, one of these letters was the book of Acts. That was written by a man, an early church member like yourselves, named Luke, around 60 A.D., he wrote it to a man named Theophilus, um, and so he wrote it to him to make certain the things that he had heard about the Christian faith. So that's where the book of Acts comes to us. And so, and so, so far in the book of Acts, what we've seen is the early church grow by the thousands. And that, at, at first they had great standing with the local people, but then persecution arose. This persecution specifically came by, by way of a man named Saul. And so he was a religious leader at the time, thinking him, he himself was perfect. And he killed and murdered early church members and put them in jail. And Jesus, though, had a different um, trajectory for Saul's life than he might have had. So he ended up knocking Saul off a horse, revealing himself to him. And then Saul ends up changing his name to Paul and becomes an early church member, an early church leader, and ends up writing most of the New Testament. So it's just crazy how God works there. Um, so today in our brief text of Acts 13, 1-5, which is page 1091, I'm going to say this again. We're going to see the church gathered, we're going to see them listen, and we're going to see them scatter. 
So gathered, listened, and scattered. So if you would with me, let's read Acts 13, 1 through 5. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, <coughs> Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Wonderful. So here we are at the church of Antioch, and we have these five guys here. Um, not the five guys on Pleasant Valley Boulevard who make you burgers, but these five guys are early church prophets and teachers. And I just think these five guys are incredibly interesting. Um, sometimes when we read scripture, we take all the historical context around it, we take that out that they're real people. And so these five people are, they have a, a tattered past, we'll put it that way. They're, they're not likely to be together right now. And so let me just kind of break down who, who we have gathered um, so, first off, we had Barnabas, and if you were here last week, we learned about Barnabas. He was an encourager. His mom named him Joseph, but the disciples said, no, you're Barnabas. You're an encourager. And he, he was this great encourager. He was from Cyrene, or he was from Cyprus. And then we have Simon. We don't know much about Simon. Um, we see that he's also called Niger, which probably means he's black-skinned. So we have, we have these two guys right now. Um, and then we have Lucius, which is, first off, a cool name. Um, so there's probably jealousy amongst the others. Um, and so Lucius, um, he has a Gentile name. Um, and so that probably means he was, a, he, or he has a Greek name, so he's probably a Gentile by birth. Um, and then we have probably my favorite guy of the bunch, and probably the most interesting. I wish there was a whole like, biography written on this man. We have, we have Mannion. Mannion, as it says, was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Other translations will say he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, for most of us who have been growing up and been in church for a while, we hear the name Herod, and we're like, oh, that's probably not good. And, and you're right. You're, that's a fair assumption. So Herod the Tetrarch is not Herod the Great. They're different people. Herod the Great is the father of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Great was the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. So that, that's a good idea. Then this is Herod the Tetrarch, his son. Manning is a lifelong friend, so he possibly even could have been in, in the household at that time. Herod the Tetrarch is the one who had John the Baptist's head put on a plate. He also is the one that Jesus was taken to when he was on trial with Pontius Pilate and then sent him back. So we have these two instances in the Bible with Herod the Tetrarch. And we can maybe, we, this is an assumption, so we're not totally sure on this, but Manning could have been with him. So Jesus might have met Manning when he went, when he was on trial. So that could have been their first interaction. We don't know that for sure, but that could have been how Manning learned about Jesus and eventually came to faith. And so, first off, Herod the Tetrarch, not much better than Herod the Great. Um, bad guy. And that was Manning's lifelong companion. They were best buds. And now he's an early church member. That's pretty crazy. And then we have Saul, who is, as I brought up earlier, this religious leader who was killing and murdering and imprisoning Christians. Now, this is also an assumption, but he could have killed their friends. Like, they could know people that he has brutally killed and imprisoned. So you have these five guys together gathered amidst all of their diversity, but together they are worshiping the Lord together, they are fasting together, 
and they're praying together. Now try to think of yourself with all the people that have ever bullied you and all the bullied, all the bullied and all the bullies all together under the same roof praising God. That's kind of what we have here. We have people of different races, different socioeconomic status, different histories, and they're still together <coughs> praising God. We find reconciliation just here in the early church, and sometimes we can read right over that. Um, but it's incredible that these five men aren't together. And not only that, God, has, God selects that this church in Antioch, not the one in Jerusalem, but the one here in Antioch, sends out the first Christian missionaries. This is the first time we see people sent in this, in this capacity. So... We see them together, and through their praying, through their fasting, through their worship, they hear the Holy Spirit. And so that's the second element of the early church. They were listening. In verse 2, it says, um, verse two, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So I'm not totally sure, um, and none of us really are, exactly how the Holy Spirit told them to go about this. He could have audibly said this. They could have been together. An audible voice came from the sky. Hey, do this. Set apart these two for the work of the ministry. It could have been more of a conviction that they all felt. It could have been a nudge in the right direction. It could have been any of those things. We don't precisely know. And so, But what we see, though, is that they all get this nudge. They all get this feeling. They all get hear this voice that the Holy Spirit wants them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry. And so their response is to just obey. As we see as, as it continues in verse 3, it says, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. What they didn't do, they weren't, they weren't like, But Holy Spirit, God, um, they're our best financial givers. They also are the ones who lead worship. They're the ones who do this. And Barnabas is a really good encourager. I, I don't want to lose him. See, they were willing to send out 40% of their five-man team to go to leave, to go spread the gospel. And so I think for us sometimes it can be hard. Like We'll hear the Holy Spirit, we'll read scripture, we'll get this nudge from him to go and do something. But sometimes it's a little hard because we kind of start to count the costs. We're, we're like thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. But if I do that, then this will happen. But see, for them, they weren't like that. They just said, your will be done, God. What you say, I'll do. And that's, that's what we see them do. They place their hands on them and set them off. Something I just wanted to emphasize, and I'll get back to this later too. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that's contrary to Scripture. So, a lot of the time, you'll hear people say, Well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. Well, we're called to test the spirits. We're called to figure out, Hey, is this really the Holy Spirit? Because maybe it's just some like workup going on down here. And, like, I don't know, it could be. Um, what we need to do is, if we hear something, if we feel like the Holy Spirit's leading us to do something, hey, we need to check the word, because the Holy Spirit's not going to lead us anywhere outside of his word. Makes sense to me. Um, so as we continue, um, learning about how the church has gathered, while they were gathered, they listened, and from there we learned that they have scattered. The Holy Spirit directed these five guys to send out Saul and Barnabas to go spread the good news. In verses 4 and 5, it says that the two of them, um, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. And sailed from there Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So, all being together, worshiping like we are, fasting and prayer like we are, listening to the Holy Spirit, they were they started to scatter. They sent themselves out to spread the good news. 
These men left what they would have known. They left their friends. They left their small groups. They left where they had authority, even, where they had power. So you go to a place where no one would know them. And if anyone knew these guys, they probably wouldn't really know Barnabas. And if they knew who Saul was, they were probably going to be scared of him. And so they went to these places that were unknown to them, potentially, to go spread the good news, which we know, know, as we know, comes with persecution. And so this wasn't this easy path that they were going about, but this is what we see them do. And they go and reach these people and spread the good news because they know that people need to hear this good news. Now, for some of us, that might sound a little crazy. I, I came up with this crazy example. Imagine right now, if I came here today, and like my purpose, it was a little sneaky. It wasn't really to preach, but it was to get a few of you. It was to say, hey, as Juniata, we're going to go plant a church in Lewistown. I need three families. Um, you guys have about a week to pray about this. I, I think some of us, if, if I would specifically call you out, like grow a little nervous, maybe a little anxious, might not want to think like, oh, I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave my work. I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to leave my job. How, how could I leave and go, go to a different place? That's exactly what, what the church does. These early believers do. Um, and, and I'll be honest, like if, if um, the elders and John and Randy and Ken came to Caroline and I and said, hey, we're going to send you guys to Coolport to start a church, um, it, might, like, we, it won't take us long to have a nice list of reasons why we probably don't want to go. Um, but if, if we want to be honest... Um, and even though this is a fair assessment to say most of us are in this anxious category here, um, if you're not, then feel free to talk to us. We'll write your name down somewhere. Um, just because this is a consensual feeling that we're all having amongst ourselves, a, this would cause anxiety, that still doesn't make it right. Um, if the Holy Spirit is truly calling, like say Caroline and I, to Coldport or anywhere, we should pray about it. We should think about it. We should fast. We should worship God. And, and if he truly is, we should go. We should be committed to what he wants, not what we're wanting. Uh, John said, John quoted John the Baptist um, last week and said that we must decrease and he must increase. And so if we're holding on to our life, we just want our lives to increase. But we need to give it away to him so it can decrease. And so if, if you come in here today as a Christian or as, or as an atheist, agnostic, whatever, we can all agree on this as we look at, at this passage. What these men do might seem crazy. It might seem preposterous that they went off into a different part of the world to spread the gospel. But it makes sense. According to what they believe in, it makes complete sense, and no one can deny that. If we believe as Christians that, if, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that he is the good news, that if you don't know him, you're in hell, then it is cruel and mean, and it should be punishable not to tell other people. If you don't almost, if you don't feel that it's cruel to not tell other people about Christ and His good news, then I wonder, like, do you guys know what it means to be saved? Do you know what it means to be forgiven? Because when we know that forgiveness, when we know that He is the only way to heaven, and we don't tell another person, it almost damns them. Not that we're responsible, but we should have this responsibility on ourselves to go and tell other people. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the most important news in the entire world. See, Jesus Christ came from heaven to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, trading his purity for our shame. 
He resurrected on the third day and defeated the final enemy, which is death. And so this is why. This is why we worship. This is why we gather to worship. Why we gather to fast. Why we gather to pray. And this is why we listen to the Holy Spirit. And this is essentially why we scatter to all the parts of the world. The gospel is this. In Ephesians 2 it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that's talking about you. Um, you were once dead. Even if like, you have this testimony that, hey, yeah, from like the eighth day I've been a Christian, you were still dead before that. You were dead the moment you were born. You were not alive in Christ. And so the passage continues. It says, We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is all of us. Um, I really believe that Jesus likes to level the playing field. He doesn't say, some of us are born with, with privilege when it comes to Christianity. No, we're all born lost. We're all born dead. And naturally, we are sons of disobedience. As it says, and that's kind of scary to realize that, that the moment we come out of the womb, we're dead. That we're sons of disobedience. We're daughters of disobedience. You must wish there was a but there. But, but what, what about this, God? But what about this? What if I do this, God? What if I, what, what if I go to church every Sunday? What if I, I give 17% of my income instead of the 10? He says, no. Ephesians continues, though. But it does have a but. It has, but God. So even though we're dead, it says, but God, who being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what can a dead man do besides being dead? Jesus, by his grace, by his love, by his son and his blood, has saved us. And it is only because of that that we are saved. And if we know this news, and now that we do, how can't we gather? How can't we listen? How can't we scatter? Like the early apostles did. And if we don't do that, then what are we doing? If we aren't gathering, if we aren't listening, if we aren't scattering, as an early church, what are we doing? Because that's what we're called to do. If the message of Christ is true, it should become who we are. It should become what we're obsessed about. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to scatter and to go to Africa, to Indonesia, to, to Asia. Because, in a way, we already are sending people. We have missionaries that we're sending abroad to reach people who are not reached yet. We are reaching the, the, the lost that way. So, like, all the financial support that you guys might give individually and as a church is spreading the word. It, it is scattering as us. We, we might not be on the front lines, but we are, in fact, scattering. But at the same time, in a few minutes, whenever I get done in about 45 minutes or so, um, <laughs> you guys are going to scatter out of these doors. You guys are going to go into different parts of Bellwood, uh, Blair County, and so forth. And in a really w real way, you guys are going to scatter. You guys are gathered now. You're listening, I hope. Um, I was told someone's going to fall asleep. Um, <laughs> But you're listening, and then soon you're going to scatter. You're going to scatter to parts that might be unknown to you, but you're going to scatter to your home, to your workplaces, to your relatives maybe. And I'm sure some of those people don't know Jesus. And I'm not saying that you need to go right now and then go tell them, tell them about Jesus. 
But you are called to. You are called to tell them. You're called with you with your lives and with your words. Tell them about who Jesus is, that he is the Savior of, of, of their world. Because we're all lost until we know him. And so, see, this is what the Antioch church was doing. They were living in this manner. They were living in a manner, as Scripture says, that was worthy of the gospel. And that's what I always want to call you guys to do. I want to call us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel so that we do gather, so that we do listen, so that we do scatter. And so for the rest of, um, so that's, that's what we see. If you're following all your bullets, I just want to make sure I hit it. Um, if you want to go to the next slide here. Um, oh yeah, God intends for his church to gather and scatter. Um, that's the, there at the bottom. But I'm not done. As the early church were called to do that. And so in the passage, um, I just want to kind of break down a little bit more of what we talked about. And then kind of apply it a little bit. Because, we, I, because honestly, we kind of look over what they were doing, when they were gathered, how they were listening, and so forth. So worship. What exactly is worship? When I preached two weeks ago, I said sometimes we think that we're all going to be in heaven listening to Chris Tomlin music. And that's really not the case. Because uh, scripture, and even, even Ken brought this up in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, it says that we will be with all the nations, all the tribes, and all the languages worshiping the Lord. So we might need, I don't know how it's going to work, if it's going to be some mixed worship set, or if it's just going to be like, hey, we're going to have some Chris Tomlin, we're going to have some like Audrey Assad, and then we're going to have some Kirk Franklin up in here. And some of you don't know who Kirk Franklin is, and that's okay. But like, go home and get some clapping going on, because it'll be good. Um, but like, if, if we have this definition of worship as Chris Tomlin music, then we have a very narrow, narrow definition of what worship really is. So I just wanted to break down, what, what is worship? Uh, the word worship comes to us from this old English word. I'm going to try to pronounce this, but it's um, we orth sippy. Um, <laughs> we orth sippy. That's how Google told me to translate it. Um, but it com- com- combines two words, which means ascribe worth. So when we worship God, we are ascribing to Him worth, not because He needs it, but because that's what we do. And to quote a Chris Tomlin song, we were made to worship. And so our entire lives, all that we do, are made to ascribe worth, ascribe honor, ascribe strength, to give him the credit that he deserves. All areas of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything that you do means waking up in the morning and living your day for God. It means going to work, working with the inventory or the music or the arts or how, whatever you do, whether it's a mechanics, anything. Do it for the glory of God. Do it in a manner that glorifies, that shows off the excellencies of Christ. There's not one field that when God created the earth, you made that God was surprised about. He created the earth and knew that eventually we would have MP3s. He knew that we would have mechanics. He knew that we would have engines. And he created those and created us in mind. And we could do those things in a way that is glorifying to him. And so something, though, that worship is not. Worship is not, however, about you. Worship has nothing, very, it has very, very, very little to do with you. So when, when you come here Sunday morning, we want to worship. And I, I hope you get built up. I hope you feel good about yourself. But I, I don't think that's the purpose. I, I, don't, I don't want you to come in here just to feel good about yourselves. I want, want to come here because God is worthy. 
come in here because, hey, I'm going to worship God because I love God and that he created the heavens and the earth and he, he deserves all the worth and all the power. And I think, I think that's hard for us to understand sometimes that I'm going to worship, I'm going to worship for God, not just so that I feel good. And what that does for me, at the very least, the statement that worship is for God, it changes the way I do Sunday morning. So if there's a worship song I don't like, or if there's a time when I'm just not feeling time to pray, or the sermon, I don't even want to listen to it, I need to understand that this isn't about me. I'm not coming here so I can feel good about myself or that my family will end up growing up well. I come here because God deserves the praise. So when I worship the song, even if the person next to me smells really bad or smells really good, I'm still called to worship God. I'm called to ascribe to him worth, to ascribe to him honor and glory and power and majesty, regardless of my circumstances. Um, Horatio Spafford, I believe is his name, wrote the um, classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, if any of you know the backstory to that, his family died in a tragic accident. And then he wrote that hymn. He was able to find out that despite what's going on in my life, that doesn't change the nature of God. It doesn't change who God is regarding my circumstances. So even though my life might be at rock bottom, God is still great. And we can lean on that. The second part of what they were doing was fasting. Uh, fasting sometimes is seen as just not eating, but fasting is this growing a hunger for God. So, so for me personally, when I fast, I get hungry. I get real hungry. And like that, I feel it. Um, and I want to go eat, but what we're called to do is see that our physical hunger is supposed to point us to the hunger in the Bible. If, if the Bible, if we really believe it's the word of God, it's the bread of life, then we should turn to it instead. And so it's this physical reminder that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hungry, but I need to realize that I should be hungry for the word of God. And it's this time of intentional prayer as well. So just to give you very practical steps into fasting, um, if, you, if you don't know, um, just skip lunch someday. And instead of eating your, your meal, just dive into scripture, devour it, because we will grow through that. Uh, then, then lastly, prayer. And sometimes I feel like prayer, we use kind of things like Santa Claus. And like, I know we don't, we, no one in here would probably admit to it that when I pray, I kind of ask Santa for gifts. I don't think any of us would admit to that, but we kind of act like it. Sometimes we pray, and then it doesn't work out, and our thought goes to, oh, I wonder what I did that God didn't accept my prayer request. Um, and, and that's karma. If you think that God works on this workspace system, that's, that's called karma, but God is grace. And so what God is working in us is our sanctification. He's working to make us holy. Um, and I, I think that might be a sound a little confusing of like, hey, he's making us holy. What, what does that look like? Um, if any of you have ever seen a bronze statue get made, you have this mold, right? Um, it's made out of all these different things. You have the mold and then you fill it with the bronze. The bronze hardens. And then starts this violent process, this like sparky process. You can get anything from welding tools to hammers, and basically you take off this outer layer, and what comes out is just the bronze statue. And so that's kind of what God does to us. He uses tools that we probably don't want him to use, like pain and suffering, um, through prayer, so that what comes out is what, what is who we truly are. And so when we are sanctified through prayer, what God is doing is taking outside our taking off our outer layers so that we can become who we truly were made to be in the image of him. So as a congregation, when we pray, what we do is we submit our will to God's and say, God, I don't know 
if this is what you have for me, but I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to let you take control over this. Um, as a church, we, we've brought this up a number of times already today, um, but we're looking to do the 40 days of prayer together. Um, the pamphlet should be out in the foyer. We would love for you to do that. It's like a daily devotional, a time to pray, but not just a time to pray, but a time for us to all pray together while we're scattered. The second part of what they were doing was listen. And I've already hit this a little bit. Um, but when we listen to, to the Holy Spirit, sometimes we just want to sit down and wait for the Holy Spirit to tell us something audibly, figure out where to go. But simply put, the Holy Spirit will tell us what he wants to tell us through his word. Um, the Bible will lead you where you need to go. And as we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Like I said earlier, the Holy Spirit will never lead us in a direction that is counter to where scripture is going. So if you want to find out what the Holy Spirit wants for you, well, you listen to God's word. You see that, hey, these five guys were together. And they probably hated each other before Christ. But through Christ, they were able to come together. So just something simple like that, maybe that's saying, who do I hate at church? Maybe I should become friends with them. Maybe we should pray together. Maybe. Um, and then the, the last part was that, um, so if we're a gathered church that is worshiping, fasting, and praying, and we are listening to the Holy Spirit, we should be naturally scattering. We should be naturally going out into the world. So what I thought about this was, in the book of Ezekiel, there's this time when God takes Ezekiel to this valley. So imagine yourself in a valley. Um, I kind of think of Mufasa, the scene from Lion King, in that valley. But now imagine you're, you're up to your knees in dry bones. Just dry. It's kind of eerie. Um, probably like overcast. But just dry bones all around you. Probably some of you, you probably get a little scared, a little creeped out. And God says to you, is there any life here, Ezekiel? Is there any of these bones or any of them alive? And Ezekiel's a little, little timid. He says, only you, only you know God. Um, and God tells him to speak life into these dry bones. And so that's what he does. He speaks words of life into these places of death. And so for you, maybe some of you, your life feels like a valley of dry bones. Maybe that's what your work or your school or, or maybe your inner life or your, even your family feels like to you. God calls us to speak life into those. And so when Ezekiel speaks life into those dry bones, the bones come together and bone, bone comes to bone and flesh comes onto the bone and, and organs form in them. And what rises up, it, Scripture says, is an exceedingly great army. So scripture calls us to scatter to these valleys of dry bones in very real ways. In our lives, inside and then outside to your schools, to your neighborhoods, to your friend's house, and to spread that good news. To spread words of life to bring life. Because if you're not bringing life, you're bringing death. When Paul and Barnabas went out, they went out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as we said before, if we aren't bringing God, what, what are we really believing? If, we, if we believe in this gospel message. We believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that his word, this gospel, literally can bring life to people. How can't we share that? How can't we bring that good news? So as a church, we emphasize this over and over to go and reach out to your friends, your friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. So I encourage you once again to speak life into them through your word and through your actions because it's about scattering. After being a gathered church, we're here right now calling the play. You guys are listening to it. And then I pray we scatter. And I know you are because you're not going to stay here for probably second service. But you're going to scatter. 
And I pray that you send the good news wherever you go. You, you are all vessels of light to a dark world. So as a congregation, I challenge us to go forth. I challenge us to continue to gather together, worshiping the Lord, fasting for the Lord, and praying to the Lord. And I call us to listen to God through his word and the Holy Spirit's guidings. And doing all of this, be led by God to feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit to go forth into our surroundings and spread the words of life to ourselves and to all of those around us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for your Son, for leaving you in heaven to die for us on the cross, to give us life, Lord, to make us clean and to adopt us as sons and daughters. God, allow that to inspire us to move forward, to scatter into parts that might be scary. God, move in us. Allow us to decrease and allow you to increase in our lives, Lord. God, allow us to go forth from here to spread your life to everywhere we go. God, in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you.